you know, we had a, quite a few groups that that was a strategy that they took on um, when COVID hit was in order to keep their doors open, they actually flipped the switch and went from mid-contract, fully insured to self-funded, and they were able to keep their doors open. Hello, comrades. My name is Quinn Peterson, and this is the Payer Revolution podcast, where it's my job to help business leaders in the United States believe that they actually can take control of their employee healthcare expenses and change the entire healthcare system as a side effect. My guest today is Katie Wood. She is a senior vice president at USI Insurance Services. She started in the third-party administrator space with Cobra and other administrative plans and then moved into brokerage. And she is now one of the most energetic, enthusiastic, and helpful people I've had the opportunity to meet. I'm really excited to talk to her today. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, Katie, I I don't think anybody grows up saying, I'm going to be an insurance broker. (laughs) But uh, I know your degree is actually in childhood education. Is there anything that transfers from that space over to health insurance and brokerage? Well, funny that you should ask. You're correct. So my degree is in early childhood and elementary education. I thought all my life I wanted to be a teacher until I got a job and got my first paycheck and thought, I can't live off of this. Quite frankly, I didn't you know, think I was going to go into insurance either. That was kind of the furthest thing from my mind. And just happened to kind of stumble into a job with a company called National Benefit Services doing cafeteria plan, COBRA, HSA administration, as you mentioned. But I do think that having an education background does help in some ways, because I like to think that insurance is a very complex subject for most employees, people in general, I guess, not even necessarily have to be employees. But, you know, my job is to help educate employers, employees on their benefits and how you know, to maximize those, how to take advantage of them. It's a foreign language in and of itself. And so trying to break that down. So, you know, I think that having an educational background, being able to break things down into bite-sized pieces, so to speak, has definitely served me well. You know, you take a lot of public speaking classes when you're also in education. And so learning how to be a stand up in front of a group and do open enrollment meetings has also, I guess, been part of that, uh, my teacher training. So make good bulletin boards too, if you ever need one. <laughs> do, uh, do any of your employer groups ask you to help out with their bulletin boards in the lunchroom or anything? No, although when I worked, so my college job, I worked at Costco and I was actually helped open the one in Ogden that goes to show how long ago I was in college, but we had a lot of bulletin boards and I was tasked making all the bulletin boards for safety and other things while I was working for Costco. Well, I, I appreciate your, your education background. As I've been talking to business leaders, CFOs, CEOs, uh, HR people, I got to think that that is such a useful skill because this, this space is just incredibly complicated. And I got to think it's, it's getting more so. Now, you've been doing this for, what, 15, 18? Uh, about 15 years now. Yeah. How, what have you noticed that has surprised you about the way the industry has changed? Well, there's been a few changes. Obviously, I was, you know, started my career pre-Affordable Care Act, pre-the ACA. So, I mean, even just this week, I feel like it's kind of gone a little bit full circle with the passing of the, you know, the new COBRA legislation, expanding that, uh, the COBRA kind of relief fund, so to speak. It brings back my days of working at National Benefit Services when they announced that they were going to do the two-thirds subsidy, although now it's 100% subsidy. So everything does come full circle. But, you know, I would say as far as the role of the broker in particular, it's definitely become a more consultative, more strategic 
costs keep going up. And so we have to do something to bend the curve. You know, healthcare reform definitely made healthcare available to everybody, but not necessarily the health insurance affordable, right? And that's been the biggest issue. And so my job and one of the reasons I love being at USI is we want to peel back a lot of the layers of the health insurance model, find that transparency and find where we can pull levers to really save money. And I feel like that's been the biggest change is our job as a broker is no longer just the transactional going out to bid, getting quotes every year and coming back and letting you pick off the spreadsheet, which carrier do you want to go with? Um, it's really being more of that strategic advisor and having, you know, being an integral part of the leadership team and helping them develop a really creative, meaningful benefits, you know, strategy. Yeah. So that response brings up the question that I'd like to ask all of my guests, which is why should business leaders become more involved in the management of their employee health plan? For a lot of these people, this is a painful subject. It's something they don't want to talk about at the end of every year. It's unappreciated by their employees and a painful experience for them. Why do you think they, they should be paying more attention to it? You're exactly right. I usually start every meeting we go to with, I know I'm the last person you wanted to meet with today, but no, you're exactly right. CEO, CFOs, you know, they try to push it off to lower level. You know, I shouldn't say lower level, but HR staff, you know, benefits administrators, et cetera. But I think that business owners and executive level really should be involved for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's typically their number two spend next to payroll. So depending on the size of the employer group, I mean, you're spending millions of dollars a year on your employee benefits spend. So you might want to know kind of what's going on and where there might be potential to save money. Some of the cost-saving solutions might appear from the surface to be a little bit more work. And so if you're putting that on an HR person, they just want to push the easy button in oftentimes cases, not necessarily. I work with a lot of very sophisticated HR professionals that are all about trying to save money, but their job is really to keep employees happy and not necessarily save money, right? And mm -hmm. our goal is to try to you know, merge the two of those. And, but it's, you know, number one cost spend and it's a key retention and recruiting factor. And so if you're trying to recruit and retain great employees, having a really powerful competitive benefit package is key. And so if you're not involved in those decisions, you're really kind of missing the boat there. And oftentimes, you know, our strategy and ways we try to engage upper management leadership is, I know you don't really care about your benefits per se, but what if we could save you a million dollars? What could you do with the business? How could you reinvest that into your business and use that million dollars elsewhere? And that's our goal is really to try to be a strategic partner and find those savings so that they can better the business overall. So do you have employers, do you have people that you've worked with who have actually saved that kind of money once they got involved and started looking at this as a, as a manageable cost center? Absolutely. You know, and obviously the amount of savings that you're going to save a company is also dependent upon how much their spend is. So the smaller the group, obviously we probably aren't going to find a million dollars in savings, but over time by implementing different solutions, and that's one of the unique capabilities that we do have at USI is to put into a multi-year strategy and show you how, you know, a solution that you might put in place today that compounding savings year over year. So you can see that over five years, it could potentially equate to a million dollars in savings. 
But I would say, you know, on average for most groups, we're trying to, you know, if it's a meaningful savings, it's usually, you know, at least a six figure savings on their benefits spend when they're making, you know, the self-funded type decisions in this case. So what do you find that business owners often, what do they do with that, excuse me, with that savings? Are they reinvesting it in their business? Are they reducing the cost of benefits or increasing them? How are they using that savings? I would say D, all of the above. It kind of depends on what situation that company is in. What's what does their business look like right now? Are they very cash flow positive? They are trying to recruit high-level employees. If we're saving them money, they're usually trying to reinvest that into additional benefits. And it may not be necessarily health insurance benefits, but you know, here in Utah with the Silicon Slopes, it's cereal bars, it's meals, it's you know, all those extra employee perks to try to better themselves, you know, against their neighbors. But then we have other companies that we work with, especially in COVID, you know, moving to a self-funded plan in a lot of cases was an immediate cash flow lift for some groups. And they were able to keep their doors open, you know, just by not having to necessarily have all that upfront cost. So I would say every employer is a little bit different in what they do with those savings, just because every company, just like every person out there is in a different financial situation and has different circumstances that they're dealing with. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is this idea of self-funding, partially self-funding and and the variations on self-funding, because you are really one of the Valley's experts on this self-funding model. I'm wondering if you could share with the listeners here a brief idea of what self-funding is and how it compares with what they generally might think of insurance, which is what we call the fully insured model. Yeah. So that's one thing to your point. We love talking about self-funding or something on the continuum of self-funding, right? There's a true continuum as we work with employers, anywhere from fully insured to fully self-funded. And most employer groups are not truly fully self-funded, meaning that they are paying 100% of their own claims out of their own pocket, right? But that's what people think of when we mention the word self-funding. And they typically will get scared and think that is way too risky I don't want to take that risk on. And really the conversation that we're trying to have with employer groups, and again, you can really self-fund at any size because of some of the mechanisms that we'll talk about. But, you know, when it really starts to make sense is anywhere in that 150 to 200 life group, meaning that you've got, you know, 150 to 200 employees participating on benefits, that's really when it's going to start to make sense. And we've got all the actuarial data to support it. But over a five-year period of time, a group with 250 employees is about 98% more likely to perform better being self-funded than they would being fully insured. So fully insured, just for the listeners that in essence, you pay a premium to the health insurance company every month. And that includes all of your claims, administration, network, all those things. It's all bundled into one lump sum premium. If you have really, really high claims one year, you know, you don't pay any extra. If you have really low, low claims one year and your employees very rarely go to the doctor, you don't get any money back. You just pay that fixed premium and it call it good, right? Now, when you're self-funded or level funded, there's there are a couple different components there, but I'll use more the terminology of partially self-funded, meaning that you take on an acceptable level of risk. Typically, that acceptable level of risk that we're working with is comparable to what your fully insured premiums are. We don't want you to spend more than what you would have paid out in fully insured premiums, 
but you break out the different components. So you're gonna find an administrator and you can find a third party administrator or you can work with one of the local carriers that will provide what we call ASO or administrative services only to where they're processing your claims, paying out your claims. You're accessing the network, but the biggest difference is you're gonna pay two different, you're gonna have two different charges each month. Um, one is going to be the administration fee. So you might pay say, let's say $40 per employee per month. And that's the fee for them to administer your claims, process everything, have access to you know, their network discounts, et cetera. And then you're just going to pay the claims as they come in. As your employees go to the doctor, they're gonna process it, give you a discount and you pay that claim. So the biggest difference from fully insured to self-funded obviously is the variance in cost from month to month. And that sometimes is what can scare an employer, right? If they have cash flow issues, they like knowing that I pay $10,000 a month. They don't want to know that one month I might pay $3,000 and the next month I pay $20,000. So that can be you know, a little bit challenging. But if cash flow is not an issue and you're paying claims as they come in, then what we do is we just set a stop loss level, which is kind of that risk tolerance level. And then you do still have insurance on those high dollar claims per individual, as well as an aggregate for your total claim spend. Um, and so that's where, in our opinion, we feel it's almost riskier to maintain a fully insured status once you get to that size, rather than become self-funded or partially self-funded, because you're still setting a risk tolerance level at a you know a certain point. You have much more flexibility. Um, you have much more transparency into what your claims are. You can pull a lot more levels to really control your medical spend. And you know, if you have a large claim one year that's not ongoing, you don't have to pay for that next year. But if you're fully insured and you have a large claim this year, guess what? You're going to pay for it next year with a double digit increase. And that's never going to go away. The carrier's never going to come back to you and say, hey, that cancer claim came off of the plan. Let's reduce your rates by 20%. That just doesn't happen. And so that's where you'll continue to see increase over increase where, yes, you could have one bad year in a five-year span being self-funded. But over time, you do typically always win when you are self-funded or partially self-funded. Yeah, I really like this idea that there's more risk in being self-funded. It feels like there is less risk because you know every month I'm going to write out a $10,000 check. But that very predictability is kind of risky because every month you're obligated to write out a $10,000 check. And if something like COVID happens where none of your employees are going to go see their primary care doctors because everybody's sheltering in place at home, you're still going to write out that $10,000 check and you might not have the cash flow coming in that you're used to, to, to back that up. You're exactly right. And that was one of the big, you know, we had a, quite a few groups that that was a strategy that they took on um, when COVID hit was in order to keep their doors open, they actually flipped the switch and went from mid-contract, fully insured to self-funded because A, people couldn't go to the doctor March, April, May. So we knew, or other than cancer services and really COVID related things, not much was happening. Um, and so claims were way down. People weren't going to the doctor. Cash flow was tight. Businesses, you know, were hanging on. And so it was, and it was an immediate cash flow bump for them. And those that stayed fully insured had most of the renewals we were looking at this past year were 50% loss ratios, meaning that, you know, 50% of the total premium that they paid went to pay claims. And they were still seeing increases in premium this next year because the carriers were saying, oh, well, all of those claims that didn't happen last year will potentially happen this year. But there's no guarantee of that. And so, again, to your point, it is. It's Carriers made a lot of money this last year yeah. on COVID. 
So let me see if I understand this right. If 50% of the premium went to claims, that means the other 50% went to the carrier as profit. Am I reading that right? You are exactly right there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so the idea of <laughs> risk, that's, that's astonishing. I hadn't heard that number before. Wow. So the difference between hedging risk and managing uncertainty really plays out strongly in a case like 2020, where we had such a bizarre year. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I did hear about a couple of companies who said that they were only able to avoid furloughs because they were self-funded and were able to redeploy their assets. Is that just, just a story or, or did you actually see that as well? No, we actually saw that as well. Um, even USI as an organization, because of we were able to, you know, maintain most of our clients through the COVID pandemic, but we had a number of our clients that went out of business or, you know, laid off a number of employees, furloughed employees. And so revenues did go down slightly, you know, and we weren't actively, you know, selling as much as we would have been just because of face-to-face -face meetings and things like that were um, not happening for a couple months there. And so that was one reason that we were able to, you know, maintain a positive year was because of the assets in our health plan, because of how much we didn't spend in health insurance costs. You know, we've got over 8,000 employees. And so you can imagine when 8,000 people aren't going to the doctor, that's a lot of money saved that would have just gone, quote unquote, you know, as profit to a carrier um, had we been fully insured. I, I'm just going to pause here for a second, let, let the listeners know. If you go to payerevolution.com, you can check out a graph that shows the cost stack for fully insured versus self-funded and uh, how the different costs work out and the savings that are generally expected. So go ahead and check that out at payerevolution.com and I'll, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But Katie, going back to the idea of self-funding versus fully insured, I think a lot of our listeners, when they think about their renewal every year and changing, what they're thinking is what they've done in the past, which is all the options this year were terrible. We're going to change networks or we're going to change carriers or we're going to change providers or something like that, but still stay fully funded. Could you describe the difference between that strategy of changing carriers or changing networks versus changing from fully insured to self-funded? Sure. So, you know, in that scenario that you just mentioned, it's quite common. It's what most, like I said, people have been doing historically in the past. It's how they manage their healthcare spend. And it causes a lot of disruption for your employee population. And so the idea of having going self-funded, you can keep your same network. So to your employees, there's very little disruption when you go from fully insured to self-funded. Um, it really is just the mechanism behind how the claims are being paid. You know, you could be with United Healthcare today, fully insured, and you could move to a self-funded model with United Healthcare next year, and your employees would have no idea that the claims are now being self-funded versus being fully insured. So it allows an employer to keep a little bit more consistency with their employee population because really the increase or potential increase that you might see when you are, once you go self-funded is typically going to be in your stop loss premium, which doesn't affect the employee. So we would take that out to market and shop that for potentially a lower rate, um, find another carrier that might be more competitive there, but that has zero disruption to your employees. And then, you know, we're also looking at potentially modifying benefits. You can actually make your benefits a little bit richer if you need to um, when you're self-funded because you can expand 
You might want to offer services for infertility or services for bariatric surgeries or things that are typically not covered on a fully insured contract as an employer, as a self-funded employer, you get to make those decisions on what you want to cover and what you don't. So you really get to turn it into rather than being or with United Healthcare, you can turn it into your company's health plan. You know, so you're not necessarily going from one carrier to another. Um, it's just which network you're using. And we can usually keep that the same. You don't, you're not usually changing. Once you go self-funded, you don't typically switch from one, you know, TPA to another. I mean, there's cases where you do, but it's not as frequent as you see people jumping around in the fully insured space. That's for sure. I've heard it compared to uh, renting versus owning, and you get to make a lot more decisions when you are the owner of your health plan rather than just renting one. Why don't you walk us through some of the ways that you have seen people modify their health plan, whether it's adding specialty providers or dealing with the skyrocketing costs of pharmacy or adding benefits that generally aren't offered in in the fully insured world. You're exactly right. You know, if you want to come in and, you know, tear down a wall, you can tear down a wall when you own the home, but you can't do that when you're renting. Um, You also get no equity, right? So the house increases in value while you're renting it. You don't make any of that money. Um, So I really do like that analogy. Once a group becomes self-funded, you know, we typically will see anywhere from five to 10% savings the first year, just in taxes and fees. And by taxes and fees, I mean, you know, now you're only paying premium taxes fees on the stop loss insurance, which is a very small portion. And I'm sure that's outlined in your graphic that you have um, on your website. Mm -hmm. But so now you're only paying taxes and fees on a small amount rather than the entire, you know, premium, which includes claims and all of the other components. And so that's kind of the first step. And that's what we tell people, great, you've made that first step. And then to your point, there's, you know, different ways to achieve self-funding. As I mentioned, you can bundle with a carrier partner, like a Blue Cross, United, Aetna, Cigna, or you can go unbundled. And again, this is sometimes a strategy that we take with clients and, you know, you go from fully insured to a bundled because it's, you know, kind of a baby step. And then once we get comfortable with self-funding on that bundled model, then we move to the TPA and start unbundling things. I also like to use an analogy of, you know, the bundled would be the idea of stopping at the gas station on the way home from work because you need gas, but you also need to get some laundry detergent and some milk. You're going to spend a little bit more for the laundry detergent and the milk because it's convenient. There's nothing wrong with that, but you're paying for that convenience. That's not what they specialize in. And so the idea of then unbundling would be The idea would be, you know, I know that grapes are on sale at Smith's, so I'll go to Smith's to get my grapes. I'll go here to get the milk because it's on sale there. I'll go, you know, so you're going to multiple different areas. And so um, that idea of unbundling where you can carve out your TPA, you can go shop for your own stop loss. And the benefit of doing that is a couple fold. One, when everything's bundled, there's typically hidden profits. There's, you know, more profit available to the administrator. And so when you go direct to the source, of course, you're taking out that convenience fee. Sometimes people will think that's going to be more work for them and they want to pay for that convenience. But that's our job as the broker. We're going to coordinate and put all those pieces together for you. So really, at the end of the day, you're not seeing it as that difficult. You know, it's not going to be that difficult of a um, or that much more work for you as the plan administrator. Just making sure that you have a knowledgeable broker that understands all of the different components to adequately make sure that you have the right coverage is really what it boils down to. Um, but once you become, you know, go with a TPA and you're kind of the owner of your contract, you can do to your point 
You know, pharmacy is a huge one right now. There's so many different programs out there. We're seeing, you know, groups do, you know, very narrow formulary lists that will allow for better access to coupons, manufacturer rebates for the members. We've got some PBMs that are, you know, allowing pharmacy tourism, if you will, um, obtaining prescriptions out of Canada. Um, I've seen some that are getting medications out of the Caribbean um, because the costs associated with some of those specialty medications are so much less than they are through some of the traditional PBMs. And most of that is just due to the rebates that the PBMs are receiving. And it's such a, it's a jumbled world. I start talking to companies about their pharmacy spend when they're self-funded and can almost see fire start coming out of their ears. I met with a group not too long ago and they've been in the insurance. They're very knowledgeable when it comes to their self-funded medical plan and the owner of the company said, I've never felt more dumb, I think was his comment in a meeting as I do right now of what I didn't know about my pharmacy spend and my PBM. Most people don't realize that there are things that you can do to save money there, but that's a whole, I mean, that's a topic. I mean, that could be a topic on its own. So I don't want to get too in the weeds there, but you know, I've had companies do carve out surgical um, benefits where they're using a standalone surgical center um, to provide surgeries at a much lower cost and, you know, driving their employees to go to those locations by waiving deductibles and co-pays or reducing those amounts. So it's a win-win because the company is saving upwards of, you know, sometimes half to 75%, right, of what they would have spent in a hospital setting. And then the employee that might be making $20, $30 an hour that could afford a $5,000 out-of-pocket max now doesn't have to worry about that. So we create a benefit that not only saves the employer money, but that's also can be very beneficial to the employee as well. Um, yeah. There's third-party, you know, prior authorization on your pharmacy to make sure, you know, that those are necessary. I mean, this goes on and on and on. We've got pages and pages and ideas, you know of ideas that we could come up with on a group once they're self-funded of different levers that we can pull to really help reduce that claim spend. Yeah, I love the term lever. It's, I wrote an article and this, I'll link to this on the show notes as well on our website, uh, where we, I talk about self-funding really is the lever of the payer revolution because it gives you the power and it gives you the information you need and able, uh, to be able to make the changes that will save you and really where this all comes down to is save your employees so much money. These hardworking employees who are getting swamped every day with medical debt and with all of the other things that are going on in our world, if their employer is able to offer them better benefits, reduce their costs, maybe waive deductibles, they can plow that money into other things, uh, gas, maybe a vacation for, for something, or at least not having to worry about going bankrupt because of their medical debt. So I love all of these things that we're doing to reduce the cost of healthcare, both at the employee, employer, and ultimately all of this is going to lead to reducing it system-wide as more people just say, you know what, I don't have to do this anymore. So, so Katie, uh, I'll get off my soapbox here and just ask you a couple more questions. What are some of the misconceptions about self-funding that you see that maybe we haven't talked about yet? And how do you explain it? And what happens when that light bulb moment occurs, when the person who's been fully insured her whole career suddenly says, oh, I get it? I would say that, I mean, the number one misconception is either we're too small or, you know, they think it's only for thousand plus life groups that they're, you know, they're only 500 employees or they're only 200 employees. They're too small for self-funding. Mm -hmm. So that would be one. And then, but first and foremost is it's too risky. We're risk adverse. 
we're very conservative and we're just not interested. And so we have a lot of tools and resources that we've put together to help illustrate and try to put employers' minds at ease and show them through, you know, a look back analysis, right? To show them based on your prior years, claims, spend, premiums, et cetera, This is what it would have been if you would have been self-funded. This is what you would have, obviously, we know what you paid being fully insured. This is what you would have spent or paid being self-funded. But again, hindsight's 2020. And so then our tool will also project into the future and show them this is what we would project you to look like over the next few years. And it's also interactive to help an employer see that, okay, let's change it to pessimistic. Let's say that every year for the next five years, you max out, you hit your aggregate stop loss. Let's see what that looks like in comparison on a fully insured basis. And even in the most pessimistic years, we make all five of them pessimistic, they still save money being self-funded because they have that protection. They don't have the large year-over-year increases because if you're hitting your aggregate stop loss, that means you're having high claims and you're going to be seeing a double-digit increase the next year from um, your fully insured carrier. And so Once they see that and you can really see, okay, you have one bad year, look what happens next year with your fully insured premiums. I think that helps turn that light bulb on for employers when they can see their data and money that they left on the table and what potential savings they could see, you know, and again, are we successful 100% of the time in getting employers to go self-funded? No. Um, You know, and a reason somebody might not want to go self-funded is if they're looking to sell or, you know, go through a merger acquisition in the next couple of years, it's probably not the right move. Keep, you know, the steady fixed costs because you're not in it for the long haul. But if you plan on offering benefits for at least the next five to 10 years, and you've got at least 150 employees, you should absolutely at least be exploring it to know kind of what opportunity you might be having um, being fully insured. So you've mentioned employee numbers a couple of times. You've said uh, you can be very small, but you also have mentioned this number about 150 to 200. Are there options in your mind for employers under 100 that allow them to maybe say, let me see what I can do to take control of this? Yes. So that's where the idea of level funding comes into play. And level funding has all the benefits of self-funding without the kind of the risks that most people are worried about when you mention self-funding. So in layman's terms, it's really looks, acts, and feels fully insured, but on a a self-funded chassis. So you do have some of the flexibilities. You do save a little bit in taxes and fees. It's not as dramatic as it is, obviously, when you are more partially self-funded. But the idea is the carriers will set a premium, quote unquote, based on your maximum liability. You pay that every month. As claims come in, you know, it looks, acts, feels fully insured. And then at the end of the year, depending on the carrier and what the arrangement is, if your claims come in below what they had expected you to come in at, there is a potential of a refund somewhere in between 50, you know, 50% up to 70% of that claim surplus. I've even seen um, one carrier just recently came out with a model where they will give you 100% of the surplus. You pay a little bit more for it in admin, mm-hmm. but um, it is available. So there's that idea that you can get the surplus, but at the end of the year, if you run horribly and your claims go above that, you don't pay any extra. So it's kind of like taxes, right? <laughs> um, do you want to pay extra into your taxes every, you know, kind of pay it the maximum amount every month so that you know that you're covered at the end of the year and hopefully you get a refund? 
um, but there's a chance you might not. But it also, the benefit too, there's a couple other benefits there for going level funded on a smaller group. You know, most carriers now in our market, um, we can get level funded quotes down to five lives. So you could have as few as five employees. So if you've got a very young or healthy population, it's definitely worth your while because it's medically underwritten. Right now, the small employer space in the state of Utah um, is anything under 50 eligible employees. Mm -hmm. And it's all what we call community rated meaning that all they're basing your rates off of is the age of each employee, the age of each of their dependents, and where the group is domiciled. So if you've got sick employees, you know, high cost utilization, et cetera, then community rating might benefit you well. But if you've got a younger, healthier population, you're going to benefit from being medically underwritten. And that's exactly what level funding gives you that option. Um, And that's why it really gained popularity because it helped those healthier groups get out of community rating. They're also able to offer richer benefits. They don't have to fit into those molded mm-hmm. gold, silver, bronze level plants that are out there right. and just more flexibility in what the employer can offer. So I don't typically, when a group is going, you know, looking at a level funded option, I usually don't have them bank on getting money back at the end of the year, but you know, the benefits are that they're able to, you know, get composite rates. They're able to look at better plan designs and they also get data. So on a group under 100 in the state of Utah, anyways, we don't get any claims data on a fully insured group. So this will allow us to get claims data, insights into what's going on in the group on groups under 100 lives so that we know and we can justify potential increases that the carriers are, you know, warranting. Wow. I had not heard that that was the case, that you, you have absolutely no visibility into what's going on with your plan if, you have, if you're fully insured and under 100 employees. You just kind of have to take the carrier's word for it. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, that really impresses me. Uh, <laughs> I thought I knew quite a bit about this. But it sounds like we need to have at some point around two where we just talk about level funding. That sounds like a very rich vein to mine. And I know that the smaller employers are often the ones who are feeling the bite of their benefit, maybe even more than the, the larger ones. Mm-hmm. Katie, I appreciate your time. I don't want to take you too long, but there is one question I'd like to ask all of the guests as we wrap up. And that is, what is one thing that a business leader could do today to improve their situation or maybe just to change their relationship with their employee medical plan, this painful thing that they don't like to deal with? I would say the biggest thing they could do is get a little bit more engaged, you know, have a little bit, they're involved in just about every decision that's made. And like you, we mentioned at the beginning, this is typically the one that they don't want to be involved in, but get engaged listen to the employee population, but don't be afraid to explore new options. Don't be afraid to bend, you know, the curve. There's a lot of really creative solutions out there right now, innovative, creative solutions on the forefront, trying to address this idea of rising healthcare costs. And so try to be a leader in that. I don't, you'll never get flack from your employees for trying something that's going to provide them a better benefit at a lower cost. And you can always tweak it, but you know, don't be afraid to be creative. Um, and work with a part, you know, a benefits broker that's bringing you creative solutions and not just trying to bring you insurance off of a spreadsheet using the carriers against each other. Um, Cause that's not the best way. That's not how you figure out where you should be. Um, you really want to know overall, you know, how do your benefits stack up there? Great advice. And uh, on the show notes, I will link to an article, six questions that you can ask your broker to find out 
whether he or she really is a good source of information about self-funding. So Katie, it has been so informative talking to you about this. It and, always and is you informative. Like to, you can also link my contact information. So after they go through that survey and find out that maybe their broker isn't a good fit, they can <laughs> give me a call. How's that? I think that's great. Yes, I'll include that in the show notes as well. We'll get... Uh, <laughs> Links to Katie's uh, contact information and uh, all the things that we've talked about in this episode as part of the, the show notes for this podcast. So thank you so much for your time, Katie. I've really appreciated it. And uh, we'll be back again in two weeks with another interview with a highly knowledgeable, highly informative, and highly entertaining guest who will tell us more about how you can participate in the payer revolution. And until that time... Viva la Revolución!